I'm Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. A century ago, a group of local poets banded together. They called themselves the Fugitives, and their work would go on to inspire a popular literary method called New Criticism. Today, in honor of National Poetry Month, we're going to look back at that history with Ridley Wills, whose dad was a fugitive, plus a few contemporary poets like Destiny Birdsong will regale us with their verses. But first, the United Nations has just released the final installment of its latest report on climate change. And the message was clear. Stop burning fossil fuels. But WPLN climate reporter Caroline Eggers tells us Tennessee has other plans. Caroline joins us to break that down now. Hey, Caroline. Hey. Okay, so this report comes up from the IPCC, which is an international intergovernmental panel on climate change. And the report itself lays out the solutions we will need to consider to curb global warming. Tell me more about this report. So IPCC is this international body of experts who are tasked to create reports about the state of our climate every so often. These reports are thousand-page documents with input from hundreds of scientists and thousands of research studies. But they're also watered down to these short summaries for policymakers, and that's the part that most people read. See, IPCC reports are, were designed to help world leaders agree on a basic level of facts before climate negotiations at the United Nations. And because this will be the last report for at least five or so years, and because of our current emissions trajectories, many people have been calling it a final warning to avoid some really bad impacts. So what's the main takeaway? So this latest report is, as you said, the final installment of the IPCC's latest assessment. The first report dealt with the physical basis of climate science. In summary, humans started burning fossil fuels and cutting down large swaths of forests during the Industrial Revolution. These activities caused greenhouse gas emissions, which warmed our planet. We're now at at least 1.1 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels, and scientists say we really shouldn't surpass 1.5 degrees of warming. Mm. So that's the basis. The second report described impacts. So that covered things like extreme weather and disease. Now, this latest report is about mitigation. It's basically an outline of the choices society can make to affect the future of climate change. So this one isn't as focused on the science because it deals with economic and political assumptions and perhaps assumptions about future technology. But its basic message is very clear. The report author said, without immediate and deep emissions reductions across all sectors, limiting global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius is beyond reach. They actually said it's almost inevitable that we'll pass that threshold. And that's because of the choices that nations are making. But it's scientifically possible. There are many different steps, but the single biggest solution is to stop burning fossil fuels and switch to clean energy. Okay, so there was a press conference last week after the release of the IPCC report. I'd like to play a little bit of that now. Here is UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres. This is a climate emergency. Climate scientists warn that we are already perilously close to tipping points that could lead to cascading and irreversible climate impacts. But high-emitting governments and corporations are not just turning a blind eye. They are adding fuel to the flames. They are choking our planet based on their vested interests and historic investments in fossil fuels, 
when cheaper renewable solutions provide green jobs, energy security, and greater price stability. Climate activists are sometimes depicted as dangerous radicals. But the truly dangerous radicals are the countries that are increasing the production of fossil fuels. Investing in new fossil fuel infrastructure is moral and economic madness. So Gutierrez puts it pretty plainly that investing in new fossil fuel infrastructure is a moral and economic madness. But that's what Tennessee is doing, right? Yes, um, you're right. San Antonio is pretty clear. We've known for a long time now that we should have clean energy, but that is not Tennessee's plan. The state's largest utility, the Tennessee Valley Authority, or TVA, is planning to retire its remaining coal plants in the next decade. And TVA has indicated that it's going to replace coal with gas, which is another fossil fuel. We know this because two major pipeline companies have already pre-filed project proposals with the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. These two projects are designed to connect to gas plants that don't yet exist in Tennessee. And the Southern Environmental Law Center just sued TVA, alleging that it violated FOIA when it refused to release unredacted records relating to its plans for gas plants and pipelines. This has not been finalized yet, however. TVA is currently doing environmental impact statements, which is a federally required process, to determine whether to replace its coal with gas or solar. Okay, so we have environmental concerns about the proposed fossil fuel infrastructure, and those are big. What about the safety concerns? Absolutely. Gas pipelines, for example, can leak harmful fumes and they can explode. And these explosions do cause fatalities. So there's a bill in the state legislature right now that you've reported on that would expedite fossil fuel infrastructure projects. Can you tell me what's that all about? Yes. This new Tennessee bill would prevent local governments from blocking new fossil fuel infrastructure. It's what's known as a preemption bill. It's become a common tactic supported by the gas industry in particular. Back in 2019, Berkeley, California was the first city to ban gas in buildings. So no gas stoves or no gas for, build, for heating. In 2020, Tennessee became one of the first states to preempt these gas bans. Then in 2021, Memphis became one of the first cities to ever successfully block a major oil pipeline project. So this year, our legislator created a bill that would take away the local control needed to block such a fossil fuel project. So local control could theoretically help in the absence of federal oversight. Last month, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission proposed take, taking climate impacts into account when approving pipelines. And the very two companies trying to build pipelines in Tennessee came out against this. And that plan was later tabled. So, Caroline, this seems pretty big. I mean, for the Tennessee Valley, Valley Authority to double down on this right now. I mean, scientists are warning, and this report says it that our global temperatures will exceed safe temperatures almost inevitably, even if we take all the steps to limit fossil fuel use. What are the implications of Tennessee's decision? Well, TVA extends beyond Tennessee. The utility is currently the third largest provider of electricity in the United States. And the IPCC report basically says that we need to be pursuing all solutions now. Caroline Eggers is WPLN's climate reporter. Caroline, 
Thanks so much for your fantastic reporting on this. Thank you. We have to take a short break. When we come back, we're going to explore how a small group of Nashville poets that banded together after World War I ended up influencing today's mainstream method for literary analysis. This is Nashville. We'll be right back. I'm Khalil Colonna, and this is Nashville. It was about a hundred years ago when a few local poets banded together and formed a group called the Fugitives. They met regularly to talk about history and philosophy and art, and then they started publishing a literary magazine. Those Nashville poets would come to have an enormous impact on modern literature as we know it. So, given that it's National Poetry Month, we've decided to take a look back at this group and their legacy. I'm pleased to welcome my first guest, whose father was one of the fugitives. Mr. Ridley Wills joins us now in studio. Ridley, welcome to This is Nashville. Thank you. So tell me, who were the fugitive poets? Well, they were a group of young men, uh, often young Vanderbilt graduates and Vanderbilt English professors who met at uh, James Frank's home on Richland Avenue, where there's an historic marker, to read poetry. And uh, each would read a poem, and then the others would critique it. And initially, they used pseudonyms. But later, when it became more accepted, they used their names. And my father and his first cousin, Ridley Wills, who shares my name, were both members of that group. How did the fugitives come to be? I mean, like, what inspired them to create together? Uh, I think it was a protest against Vanderbilt. Vanderbilt had given up teaching Virgil and Homer and instead uh, was teaching Wordsworth and more modern things. And uh, they, uh, arts and science, seemed to be losing out to the sciences and the medical school, and they no longer taught Greek and Latin. And, and my father knew Greek and Latin both from high school at, at a Wallace School, and they didn't like this. So that was one of the reasons. Mm-hmm. You know, as you mentioned, your father, Jesse Wills, was a member of this group. Tell me about your father's work. All right. Uh, in 1975, Rob Roy Purdy, a vice chancellor of Vanderbilt, wrote this about my father. Though he did not consider himself a real poet, they said of Jesse some 50 years ago that his was the most natural and powerful talent of the fugitives. But he did not enter the world of letters. First, he was to try his mildest touch in fields of infinite variety. Success was golden in whatever he reached for, in his business, National Life and Accident Insurance Company, in his church, the downtown Presbyterian Church, in the study of Iris growing, where he had Iris in Kew Garden in London, uh, or ornithology or the American Indian, or helping the Cumberland Museum or the Joint University Library, where he established in the Fort Flowers Wing in 1969 a fugitive agrarian room, 
or Vanderbilt University where he was on the board of trust. Um, his supremacy in all he tried was that of a latter-day Renaissance man. Alan Tate was not willing to accept Jesse's decision to enter the business world. The reason he did it was that my grandfather, who co-founded National Life, was a manic depressive. For example, when we moved into our five-story building in 1922, he was at Johns Hopkins getting treatment. And when Dad was in college, he had to leave and take his father to various clinics in the North combating that disease. In 1929, when National Life went public, my grandfather built a hospital for his hometown of Brownsville and built what is today the Tennessee Governor's Residence, uh, a classic a Georgian mansion, uh, despite the fact that his daughter had been married in, since 1926 and the fact that my father was seriously dating his future wife, he didn't need that house, uh, but he did build it. And we later in 1949 sold it to the state of Tennessee. I've got a couple of uh, several of my father's poems I'd like to read to give you an idea of what Alan Tate called his mastery. That would be fantastic, please. Now. In the 50s, Old Hickory Boulevard between Hillsborough and Franklin Pike was completely rural. And here's what Daddy did on a Christmas day. He said, I, the name of this is I Have Known Many. This is a Christmas day in Tennessee, a landscape soft in greens and browns and grays, clean washed by rain, the hills a bluish haze, Against a gray wool sky, their shrub and tree lift their bare twigs to weave a tracery, pointed with cedars above the lighter green, where pasture meets with plowland in between, gray walls and sheep. In this tranquility is an old peace, the only sounds the twitter of small gray birds, brown towhees scratch the litter. There is the ancient tinkling of sheep's bells. The raindrops are a chain of crystal shells upon that tree where, like a spun glass ball, there shines the color of a cardinal. Isn't that beautiful? That's something else. What do you think of your dad's writing? Well, I thought it was pretty powerful. Mm -hmm. um, I'll read you another one. Uh, The Half Man. I've heard or read that only half our brain is used. I know that less than half our powers may serve us even in our keenest hours. In a half sleep we toil for our small gain. A stupor numbs our pleasure, dulls our pain. We do mechanically the things we should, besotted, slow in evil or in good. We mainly serve the trivial and the inane. Down through the generations, dust to dust, the dream endures that we, the inmost self, 
can break the bindings of our stifling crust, be wide awake and surer than an elf, striding the rainbow over a waterfall. See, hear, smell, taste, touch, know the full of all. Haven't we all felt we're half men? That sounds like a very, very insightful, modern take on uh, Internet and uh, social media right there with the now, let me, we waste. Let me read you one more. Please, please. This is to his wife. It's called Belique Valentine. The outside milk, the inside cream, thin as the tissue of a dream. The cunning work of Irish art, this cream and sugar hold my heart. Like you and I, they form a pair, sitting on the table there, fragile as our human breach, firm as love that knows no death. Each morning that you use them may, some memories come of all the way we've walked together, love of mine. So take this China valentine. Mm-hmm. And when he wrote that poem, he gave her a set of of uh, little milk glasses, Valentine. That's wonderful. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Khalil Ekelona. We're talking about the legacy of the Nashville poets known as the Fugitives. I'd like to bring in my next guest. Mark Jarman is a poet and centennial professor of English at Vanderbilt. Mark, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. So what's I your... enjoyed listening to um, Mr. Wills's uh, father's poems, Jesse Wills. What's your reaction to that last poem that really just shared? Um, it was. I thought it was very sweet. Uh, the the and um, not quite as philosophical as the previous two poems, but uh, one of the things that the fugitive poets sometimes are criticized for is being a little detached and dry but actually they're capable of um, being romantic and emotional as well, as you could hear in that that lovely love poem for his wife. You wrote essays on the fugitives. Tell me more about the style. Like what really set them apart? Um, What set them apart? I thought uh, Mr. Wills really did a good job of one of the things they were reacting to, which was a change of curriculum at Vanderbilt. What set them apart was that they saw in classical proportions and poetry uh, a way to write a modern poem. And most of the poetry that we think of as by the fugitives is in meter and rhyme, uh, traditional stanzas. And yet um, they were reacting against uh, what they called the, the genteel poetry of the 19th century, like other modern poets. Um, so what set them apart was that they could approach modern circumstances, issues of uh, class, race, they weren't so good on, but they approached it. Um, uh, industrialization, all kinds of change in these classical forms that would have been familiar to an 18th century poet, let's say. You know, I That's think- one of the things that set them apart. I, you know, I think it's... But if I may say one other thing, please, they were a group who began, who arose sort of organically to being what we would now call a workshop. They were a private workshop where they critiqued each other's poems. Uh, they didn't start out that way, but they became that way. And that 
that method has profoundly influenced American education, actually in creative writing, not just in American institutions, but uh, throughout the world. The group that looks at a poem by one of them and offers critique and suggestions, highly influential. So it's this sort of creative literary iron, iron sharpening iron sort of thing you're mentioning that they create. Kind of, kind of like that, but the sense of um, like uh, a medieval guild, as if they were all making, um, you know, cabinets, except they were all making poems, and uh, they knew in their group who, who the masters were, like John Crow Ransom, Alan Tate. Um, but they also had a sense of uh, being each other's peers and of doing what we would call now a peer review of each other's work. You know, I think it's fair to say that this may be a piece of our local history that a lot of folks aren't too familiar with, but these poets- Well, they can, yeah. Well, they can, they can do with being reminded all the time. Yeah, and, and that's, what we're, that's what we're attempting to do. And so as you remind them, tell me just how influential they were in the field of the literary arts. Oh, profoundly influential for American poetry. Um, they um, established uh, a kind of uh, a level of uh, execution. And you also mentioned um, their form of criticism, which really uh, came from uh, Ransom, uh, who uh, wrote essays and dealt with poetry as something that you could look at like any work of art. You could critique it, you could see, see its bone structure, you could understand what its organic parts were and how they worked together. This was kind of revolutionary uh, in the early 20th century. It is not the prevailing criticism today, uh, but it's the thing that against which criticism might react. It's, it, 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 it isn't. So the new criticism is a something that grows grew out of the fugitives indeed um, uh, and dominated most of the 20th century in, in English departments but it has been it has been moved aside for other concerns. Vanderbilt has schooled many great writers. Yeah. I'm curious about its legacy in poetry like how did Vandy establish itself as a poetry powerhouse? Well, the thing is, is that Vandy <laughs> originally had nothing to do with the fugitives. Yes, a few Vanderbilt uh, faculty and, uh, and students, as Mr. Wilson said, came and joined the fugitive group, or this group that later became called the fugitives. And Vandy did put on a reunion of the fugitives in 1956. But the school itself was separate from it. And they, they wanted it that way. They wanted to be outside the academic walls. I think that's right. I hope that squares with what uh, Mr. Wills has said. Now, Ridley, you um, mentioned that that reunion took place at your house. Can you tell us about that a little bit? Well, it was in oh, 1955, yeah. and uh, okay. they all came back for the first time. And Robert Penn Warren said, I said, I feel like a corpse, but I'm a happy corpse to enjoy this reunion. Um, I've got one other story I'd like to tell you. When my father was 
in his final illness. I drove him up to Suwanee, where his good friend Alan Tate was also not far from death. And Alan was not able to get off a cot. But I asked him about the guru, Sidney Hirsch, who was the mentor to the fugitives. And here's what he said. Really? Hirsch was a charlatan, but a delightful charlatan. <laughs> okay. Delightful charlatans are the ones you want to deal with, <laughs> I, can, I can imagine. So, you know, we've been talking about the legacy of the fugitives and their influence on modern literature. But we've got a guest coming on later in the show who takes issue with some of their work. I mean, we're talking about the South in the 1920s, 100 years ago. This group was made up of white men. So what are some of the complications of their influence? Mark? Oh, um, well, the complications of their influence is that they, though Alan Tate, for example, did address matters of race, um, a lynching in his poem, The Swimmers, uh, his own white privilege in his sonnets at Christmas. Um, they, <laughs> they left out the whole issue of uh, the segregated society they, they lived in. They did not address it. Um, if anything, uh, Tate thought that it was more of a problem for lower classes than his. Um, so that that's made them a kind of um, necessarily uh, a, a target for for reaction and response and even a, a rejection. But I want to say something about the the the, the classical nature of their poems. Um, the African American poet Gwendolyn Brooks begins her career writing in sonnets and rhyme verse and in blank verse, which is something that the fugitives helped to revive. Um, and the poet Robert Hayden, who taught at Fisk in the 1960s, similar, similarly did. So there was a sense in which that form, if not their subject matter, uh, reflected the influence of the fugitives. But you have, you, you, you have to admit that they were uh, of their time and of their class in this region. And when they spoke about, say, universal things, they were leaving out a good large segment of their society. All right, Mark, you've so got- that's one of the problems. You've got a poem that you would like to share with us today, right? Well, I have a, I have a poem by my favorite of the fugitives, uh, who was John Crow Ransom. And he has a poem that sort of is, uh, it kind of spoofs the, um, the genteel South they believe that they were reacting to. But there's also a sense in which it has in it um, the, the depiction of their own problems, their own uh, ways in which they would be beset and perhaps superseded, let's say, as, a, as an aesthetic movement. This is a kind of ballad and it's in rhyming quatrains and it, it's a little creaky and it's called Captain Carpenter. Captain Carpenter rose up in his prime 
put on his pistols and went riding out, but had got well nigh nowhere at that time till he fell in with ladies in a rout. It was a pretty lady and all her train that played with him so sweetly, but before an hour she'd taken a sword with all her mane and twined him of his nose forevermore. Captain Carpenter mounted up one day and rode straightway into a stranger rogue that looked unchristian, but be that as may, the captain did not wait upon prologue, but drew upon him out of his great heart. The other swung against him with a club and cracked his two legs at the shinny part and let him roll and stick like any tub. Captain Carpenter rode many a time, for male and female took he sundry harms. He met the wife of Satan, crying, I'm the she-wolf, bids you shall bear no more arms. Their strokes and counters whistled in the wind. I wish he had delivered half his blows, but where she should have made off like a hind, the bitch filled off his arms at the elbows. And Captain Carpenter parted with his ears to a black devil that used him in this wise, oh Jesus, ere his threescore and ten years, another had plucked out his sweet blue eyes. Captain Carpenter got up on his roan and sallied from the gate in hell's despite. I heard him asking in the grimmest tone if any enemy yet there was to fight. To any adversary it is fame if he risked to be wounded by my tongue or burnt in two beneath my red heart's flame, such are the perils he is cast among. But if he can, he has a pretty choice from an anatomy with little to lose, whether he cut my tongue and take my voice or whether it be my round red heart he choose. It was the neatest knave that ever was seen stepping in perfume from his lady's bower, who at this word put in his merry mien and fell on Captain Carpenter like a tower. I would not knock old fellows in the dust, but there lay Captain Carpenter on his back, his weapons were his old heart and his bust, and a blade shook between rotten teeth a lack. The rogue in scarlet and gray soon knew his mind, he wished to get his trophy and depart. With gentle apology and touch refined, he pierced him and produced the captain's heart. God's mercy rest on Captain Carpenter now. I thought him, sirs, an honest gentleman, citizen, husband, soldier, and scholar, and now he let jangling kites eat of him if they can. But God's deep curses follow after those that shore him of his goodly nose and ears, his legs and strong arms at the two elbows and eyes that had not watered 70 years. The curse of hell upon the sleek upstart that got the captain finally on his back and took the red, red vitals of his heart and made the kites to wet their beaks, clack, clack. So our Captain Carpenter and his heroic allegiance to things chivalrous is deconstructed right before our eyes in this poem as uh, his enemies take every part of his body. Um, that is poet and Vanderbilt English professor Mark Jarman. He was joined by histor historian Ridley Wills. Thank you both for coming onto the show and sharing with us. Appreciate it. We're taking a quick break. When we come back, poets Joshua Moore and Destiny Birdsong join us to share their work and talk about how living in today's world helps shape their writing. This is Nashville. We'll be right back. I'm Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. 
What better way to honor National Poetry Month than to have some contemporary poets join us to talk about their inspiration, journey, and work. I'm pleased to welcome Nashville poet and essayist Destiny Birdsong. She's the author of Nobody's Magic, her first novel released just a few months ago. Congratulations. Destiny, welcome to This is Nashville. Thank you. Poet, happy to be here. Happy to have you. Poet Joshua Moore is also with us. He's the former host of WPLN's Versify podcast. Joshua, thank you for being here. Happy to be here. So in the last segment, we focused on the legacy of the fugitives who had a pretty big influence on modern literature and how we consume it. But just before the break, you know, we, we touched on the complications of that legacy. Destiny, I, I'd like to start with you. You know, I know the work of the fugitives was a part of your curriculum. Where does that work, their approach, fall short for you? You know, the most memorable experience I had with reading the work of the Fugitive Poets was actually reading Alan Tate's poetry alongside some of his letters. Mm. And his depictions of Black people were dismissive. They were um, intended to be funny, but were actually disrespectful. And I just think it's important to remember that all of our heroes have feet of clay. You know, I was sitting in a classroom reading that while um, being an MFA student and a PhD student. Um, I was doing both at the same time. And my first thought was, what would these men think of me sitting here in this classroom? Did their work intend for me to be possible? Um, and I don't know that the answer to that is yes. And so that's that's where I stand with them. Their, their legacies are complicated. I'm grateful for the work they've done, but that does not obligate me to um, hero worship or to whitewash their mm. shortcomings. Mm -hmm. Joshua, what's your take? Yeah, I think that's really excellently put by Destiny. Um, similarly, I think I found my work is often very influenced by like personal subject matter. And so the kind of like intentional, intentional avoidance or exclusion or, um, yeah, just like the lack of focus on the sort of stickier content of human experience in the time they were a part of, um, looking at the landscape without considering the violences that happen on that landscape and the ways in which they contribute to them. Um, it always... It left the work feeling hollow to me in some ways, which is to not say, which is not to say that it doesn't have um, content and things to draw from in terms of like understanding the mechanics of craft and writing and like some of the structural structural elements of poetry. I think Professor Jarman um, made it very clear, like they were experts. You know, they were many of them masters at their trade, um, and so I have really had an appreciation through you know, doing my MFA at Vanderbilt for kind of learning some of those techniques, but thinking about how those techniques can then be reapplied to the things that they wanted to avoid, or the things that they consciously omitted in their own work. Destiny, I want to loop back to what you said about, like, how does grappling with that legacy, how does that influence your work? That's a great question. Um, I think that when I am thinking about my work and I'm thinking about form, you know, fortunately, I also have black poets who are writing at the same time who are also formalists that I can look to. 
you know, um, the the Dunbars, Paul Lawrence Dunbar, Alice Dunbar Nelson, um, County Cullen, who was also writing. I mean, the Harlem Renaissance was happening at the same time mm-hmm. that these poets were doing their work. So there was concurrent work in form happening during that decade. And certainly they probably benefited from reading the work of each other. I don't know how much of the I don't know how much of, of that work they were reading or they were cross pollinating, but I think back to those writers, um, more specifically. And as Mark Jarman pointed out, like, you know, Fisk University, which is also my alma mater, I went there for undergrad, has a rich legacy of writers. I'm a multi genre writer. So, and I'm also a narrative poet, so I benefit from the work of storytellers of all kinds, whether they're poets or not. Um, and so I look to places like the Harlem Renaissance. I look to writers like Nella Larson, who was um, who was at Fisk in the 1930s. I I look to Ann Allen Shockley, who was a librarian um, a little bit later in the 60s and 70s, who wrote who wrote short stories. And I I I, I like to look back at people who wanted my work to exist. And I know that, right? I'm not so sure about everybody. Mm. So those are the ones that I look to. You know, I'm curious about how Nashville influenced the work you both create. Like, Destiny, like, what, what is it about this city that kind of feeds your work? Well, I mean, if you want to write about race, there's certainly a lot of material. Mm-hmm. Um, True. Um, I've had my own experiences with racism here. I still love this city. I still live here. And the fact that I can create art here is a, is a miracle. Um, but there's also so much that I've gotten from the city. I, sh- I came here 10 days after my 18th birthday, and I started at Fisk in January of 2000. And the immersion of, of like, the the just being immersed in all of this beautiful black culture and like going to the special collections um, room at the library and looking at Frederick Douglass's Bible and reading, you know, unpublished work from writers that are like in those papers that shaped me so much. And, you know, I had a history professor who had us reading novels alongside our historical texts. And I, I didn't go to Fisk thinking that I would be a poet or a writer. I knew that I wanted that to be some part of my life, but I didn't think I could make a living in it. So I just thought, oh, you know, I'll be a professor or a lawyer or something like that. Um, But I was met with so much literature. It really was inevitable that I would, that, that, that I would, I would, um, succumb to my impulses of Hmm. making art. I was surrounded by it all the time. Um, and, you know, having that university here in this city, you know, it was a gift. It was a gift. But also meeting other great writers here, like Joshua Moore and I are not just colleagues, we're friends. Um, and we talk about our work. We talk about writing in all of these different traditions, right? Southern, Black, queer, um, uh, uh, Bible, uh, children of the Bible <laughs> belt <laughs> in more ways than we like to admit. Um, so the, the, the group of artists here right now is so rich. Um, we met songwriters a few weeks ago that just blew us away. Like in almost every genre, there's someone here doing something amazing and doing it on the soil, you know, that, you know, the Jubilee singers were walking on, that uh, the writers who, who came, who've come through the city, the activists who, who made this country a better place were making art 
on top of that land. And it's so wonderful. If you're tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Khalil Ekelona. We're visiting with local poets Joshua Moore and Destiny Birdsong. Joshua, let me ask you, Nashville, you're born, you're from here, am I right? I am, yeah. I was born a few, I guess, a blocks away at formerly Hubbard Hospital, but now Metro General. Okay, so this is your home. It is, yeah. Talk to me about how it influences your work. Yeah, that's, you know, a really rich question for me because my family isn't from Nashville originally. My mother is from Nigeria. My father is from, you know, Flint, Michigan. And my dad came here for school and we ended up staying. And so there was always, to some degree, a quality of distance in the sense of like local history. Um, but yet we were always a part of the fabric of the community. You know, my dad, um, you know, had strong relationships with alumni from Fisk, from Meharry. Um, from TSU. They're both members of our church that's really invested in the community. But it was really my mom who early on helped us to have an appreciation for the history. Like she would tell us kind of some of those stories of the founding of Fisk University or the Jubilee Singers or how Meharry got its start. And there was always this um, this quality of like wonder for me mm. when we would talk because it was a history that I wasn't learning in school. You know, in my AP U.S. history courses, uh, there was like a concerted absence in terms of like the narratives of the broader black community. And it was really only through leaving and coming back that I started to have a fuller appreciation for how precious and important those narratives were to me. Um, you know, I left I went to a different state for college, and when I came back in 2014, the city was already in a state of transition. Um, and it was so strange to walk this landscape that had literally been a part of the, you know, the fabric of my childhood and see it um, critically altered even then and now in ways that are almost unrecognizable. Um, and I remember feeling this like critical sense of fear that like, what happens to the stories of the people who are here? What happens um, to their histories and experiences? Um, and Who's going to document that when these, you know, when new folks roll into the neighborhood? Um, and that was before, you know, I had much involvement with WPLN or even like Versify, the podcast. But I had always had that hunger to somehow be a part of using poetry as a means of bridging that gap, of doing the little bit that I could where I could. Um, Destiny mentioned like... Uh, activists and the rich history in the soil. And, you know, we got to talk to some of the freedom writers uh, mm. for our final season of the podcast. And it was remarkable just to even like beyond my own sort of scope to understand how reaching and impactful the lives of the people who preceded us here were um, and and get to like sit in the room and listen to them speak, but also to have the responsibility of like forwarding that legacy onward. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. And using poetry as a means to do it. I mean, it's natural poets, National Poetry Month. This episode is about poetry. You both happen to be in the studio. I'm not letting you leave until you share some work with us. <laughs> so, Joshua, would you like to share a poem with us, please? Yeah, yeah, I will. So, and Destiny actually reminded me, this poem had like a sort of circuitous um, versified poetry on demand connection that ended up, this is the, um, the first poem of my thesis that I did at Vanderbilt for my MFA. Um, and it came out of... So Poetry on Demand is like, we go into the community, we have a fleet of poets, we would sit down across from people and they could share a life story and we'd write them original piece. And one year we went to Pride, the festival, and there was a young woman who came up, she was a Vanderbilt student, and she was sharing sort of a friend's story, but her relationship to a friend's story who had been really involved in like 
the religious group on campus and then um, had had a really sort of conflicted time in coming out and experiencing the response from people who she had been in fellowship with, who she had thought of as friends and family, um, and really received an unfortunate kind of backlash in terms of like her stepping into her truth. And I remember sitting there and writing this poem and um, feeling a a deep kinship with uh, the girl whose story I I was being told, but also a sense of... um, yeah, a sense of like impo- like being an imposter of like not being able to be or not being willing to sort of step into that space myself. Mm. And so that that sense of grappling with like the tension between, you know, the community value and like the personal value and like your honest self and yeah, and how you were raised to to think about what is acceptable was definitely a a knot in my mind and it informed this poem um yeah and it's called to a friend on coming out and two things that you should know about it is that it makes a reference there's you'll hear the word millstone and that's a reference to matthew 18 6 um and the the two final lines of the poem are heavily influenced by marie howe's poem magdalene the addict and the affliction to a friend on coming out after marie howe When he asked me why I wouldn't, or if I feared my family would love me less, I knew he hadn't fathomed the scope of his request, had never felt the grope of worry tighten in his chest, a slow constrictor, strangulating breath out of its prey had never prayed to be the body, millstoned and roped and levered by the throat into the sea, or couldn't see the looks they'd give, hear the low hiss of parishioners seething sinner, sacrilege, insisting I be partitioned from their kids, had never wished to have it fixed. Pay strangers to affix two small electrodes to the temples. Let the voice of God charge through. Never raved or ached or pleaded to be made anew. That something new would come when nothing would and no one. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that with us. Destiny, we've got just a few minutes here. Can you share a poem with us, please? Absolutely. This is the yeah, this is the last poem in my um debut poetry collection negotiations. It is called And Though the Odds Say Improbable, if you know the line, you know. And it's in rhyming couplets. So uh big ups to tradition to tradition. <laughs> and though the odds say improbable. The black ladies in their printed dresses float into the deli, tip-tipping across the coat of grease on the floor. It's still warm in October, so they remove their sunglasses, rub their oiled shoulders, remark, ooh, so cold in here. One watches purses while others shimmy to the salad bar. Some are nurses here for conferences, some on lunch breaks from government jobs downtown, some are flakes. 
unemployed, divas, deans, retired, do hair, edges slick, wand curls crisp in the freond air. They pinch the fainted lettuce onto plates. They scoop the pitted olives, cherries, dates into bowls. The cotton-blended florals, plaids, prisms, paisleys, polkas flutter on calves until they reach their seats. They kiss mustard, avocado, banana pudding, well, really just custard with mashed-up banana, from three-ringed fingers. One sways to the soft-serve machine and lingers a little too long, but returns with a smile, a swirl cone done up soda counter style. Every one of them been through something, sit-ins, bombings, busing, the crack epidemic, Reaganomics, backdoor abortions, miscarriages, picket signs in front of the free clinic, and now the white girl with the blunt bob snatching plates too early. They tap her wrist, give each other the look, say, it's all right, miss, don't worry about us. My heart liked to stop when the black ladies nodded their heads and hoops, clip-ons, drop pearls, chandeliers, gold nickel earrings twirled above beautiful elbows. Not a care in this old world. <clears throat> Republic men crumbled. Black Wall Street crashed about a century ago. They leave together. Their laughter is brash and openly secretive. You bet not ask. Perfume wafts. They wave. Say, all right, girl, I'll be seeing you. One coughs, and I pray it's just the cold air, the pollen, the pepper, little piece of meat stuck in her throat. Listen, the black ladies better have a blessed day, month, year, life, and I mean it the opposite way they mean it whenever they have to say it to co-workers, husbands, customers, the demon board. Child, I meant deacon. As I leave, I touch the table where they sat. They ain't superhuman, ain't always able to save the children, the men, the country, or even your silk presses, but whatever they touch, somebody's good God blesses. Thank you. That is poet and essayist Destiny Birdsong, author of Nobody's Magic. She was joined by poet Joshua Moore. Thank you both for being with us. We want to thank everyone who tuned in this hour. Tomorrow, we're inviting our three candidates for Davidson County District Attorney into the studio to answer your questions. So email us your questions at thisisnashville at wpln.org or tweet us at thisisnashville. Head to thisisnashville.org to leave us a voice message. This is Nashville is a production of WPLN News and Nashville Public Radio. Listen back at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Our producers are Steve Farouche, Rose Gilbert, and Tasha A.F. Limley. Our digital lead is Anna Gallegos-Cannon. Michaela Elias is our technical director. Our executive producer is Andrea Tudhope. The masterminds behind our theme music, y'all, are LaRange and Namir Blade. This is Nashville. I'm Khalil A. Colonna. We'll see you tomorrow, everybody and be good to each other.